Father, it is all you. It is all your grace. It is in Christ alone that, is, that our hope is found. Thank you. Thank you for what you have done in spite of what we have done. Thank you for who you are in spite of who we are. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for sending your Son. And may we now hear your word in response to your kindness and grace. Show us Jesus. Our hope in him, our need for him, and our life with him. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you, team, for leading us this morning in singing and worship. I encourage you to open your copies of of the Scriptures this morning, please, to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and as you're finding your way there, just a few introductory comments, especially to those of you who are new around here. We love it that you're here with us. We love having new people. And um, just ignore that, if you would. Um, well, while you're finding your place there in Mark chapter 6, let me just say, we, we practice expository preaching and teaching around here. Now, what I mean by that is almost all of the time we're going to be working our way through a book of the Bible, verse by verse. And, and, and we're doing that because, let me just tell you a little bit about myself. My family could tell you this, that I can get on hobby horses. I can preach and teach what I want to preach and teach. You know, I do have my favorite things to preach on. Maybe that's me. Dave, is that me? Yeah, it's the microphone. And so maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just stand right here <laughs> and preach to this microphone. Um, I do have my own hobby horses I really like to hammer on. And my, parent, or my family, my wife and children would tell you that I, I can beat that dead horse until it's deader still. And so one of the reasons we preach through books of the Bible and preach expositionally is to keep us on task and to hear the entire counsel of God. And so in expository preaching, the main point of the passage becomes the main point of the sermon. We are in a text today that if I were not preaching through the Gospel of Mark, and by the way, the Gospel of Mark is the second book of the New Testament, and so if you can find the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark is the very next book, and we're in chapter 6. If I were not preaching through the Gospel of Mark, I would not choose to preach this text. This is, a, this is a hard text. This is a hard text to preach. It's a hard text to hear. It's a hard text to be clear about. So that I'm not misunderstood or I don't tell you something that the Bible isn't saying. So there is a safety net in preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse. Where the big idea of the passage becomes the big idea of the sermon. And so let's read this. Beginning in verse 53 of Mark chapter 6, and we're going to cover a large section, a large chunk of Scripture this morning, down all the way through chapter 7 and verse 23. This is the word of our God. And when they had crossed over, that is Jesus and his disciples, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. 
And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition, For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about that parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach? And is then expelled? And thus Jesus declared all foods to be clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. This is the word of our God. Did you know that Christmas is only 98 days away? 98 days away. I know because I Googled it. How many of you would say that you as a family have at least a few Christmas traditions? Raise your hands. Okay, most of you. Maybe it's that you let the kids open one present on Christmas Eve, or maybe on Christmas Eve you always gather together as a family around the fireplace and you read the old poem, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Or maybe you're like us, you get up on Christmas morning and the first thing you do before opening any gifts is that you read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2. I've told you before that one of our big Christmas traditions in our home is that we save the really big presents, the ones we know the kids really want, to the very end. And so all the way through the morning, the anticipation is always building as they're opening their new socks and their deodorant and their new number two pencils for school. It's tradition. It's the way that we do it. It's the field's way. 
And when one of our daughters was about four, and I know I've told you before, but it fits perfectly here. When she was about four, all she wanted for Christmas was a Hello Kitty phone and a Hello Kitty jacket. And when she opened her first few gifts, which were socks and hair bows and coloring books, she began sobbing uncontrollably. All I want is a Hello Kitty phone and a Hello Kitty jacket. And so being the dad, I had to pull her aside. I had two words for her that every Fields kid has to learn. When it comes to Christmas, tradition rules. And that's what's happening right here in Mark chapter 7. It isn't Christmas tradition, it's religious tradition. Jesus is upsetting the tradition of the Jewish religious leaders. He isn't playing by their rules regarding ceremonial cleansing rituals. Now, I know that sounds theologically stuffy to the 21st century American ear, like how in the world does this text about eating food with unclean hands apply to us? But hold on. Are there traditions that we hold on to as people, as individuals, or even as a church that we teach as Bible that aren't really in the Bible. Things that we do or don't do that aren't explicitly commanded or forbidden in Scripture, thinking that when we do those or don't do those things, we earn our standing with God or maintain our standing with God, or as Christians, we could improve our standing with God. That's an eternally big deal. Because as Jesus says right here, you can't worship God when your heart is all wrapped up in your rules and your traditions. And that's why the big idea of this text is this. You find it right in verses 6 and 7. God wants our hearts. God is after our hearts. Because when our relationship with God is defined by what we do or don't do, rather than what God has done and who he is, then it'll be all about the externals, the ritualistic rule-keeping And it won't be about the heart. And that's what triggers the showdown between the Jewish religious leaders and Jesus. And it all begins right here in Mark chapter 6, verse 53. It's the prelude to a showdown. Jesus, you'll remember, in Mark chapter 6 earlier on, Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. And people are talking. Word about Jesus is spreading. And when Jesus and his disciples dock their boat at Gennesaret, the people there recognize Jesus and they begin to spread the word that Jesus is right here, right now in our own town. So go get Aunt Sally and and go find Aunt George and bring them to Jesus because Jesus can make them well again. And Jesus does. Everywhere he goes, in the marketplace, in the cities, In the countryside, along the the seashore, people are made well just by touching the fringe of Jesus' garment. Many Bible scholars actually believe that in northern Israel, in the Galilean area and region, that during Jesus' ministry, disease was nearly wiped out by the grace and the power of Jesus. 
And when that's happening up north in Israel, that gets the attention of the feds down south in Jerusalem. Not the political feds, the religious feds, the big guys, the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe somebody tipped them off on Jesus' whereabouts. Maybe somebody sent down word to Jerusalem and said, Hey, hey everybody, everybody down there in Jerusalem, you guys need to get this because this Jesus thing is getting out of hand. We need some theological heavyweights to come up here and to deal with Jesus because a whole lot of what he's saying contradicts the rabbis. Somebody's got to get up here quickly. Somebody's got to shut him down. So here come the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. And when they arrive on scene, they notice that the disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. And they come to tattle to Jesus. And we need to ask the question, why are they tattling on the disciples to Jesus? Is it that these guys, the scribes and Pharisees, are really just, you know, preoccupied with personal hygiene? I mean, could they see COVID coming 2,000 years ago? Is that what they're after here? Is it really, is this really about washing hands before you eat? And Jesus is is saying, no, don't worry about washing hands before you eat. That's not what's happening here. So all you kids in the room, listen, this is not Jesus' permission for you not to wash your hands before you eat. Obey your parents. Wash your hands. So what is the issue at hand? Well, it really isn't about hands. It's about tradition. In fact, did you notice as we read the text that in the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7, the word tradition occurs six different times? And the issue that the Pharisees have is that the disciples of Jesus aren't following the tradition of those Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees believe that that people's big issue is physical uncleanness. Defilement that comes on us from the outside, from our environment. And so they believe then that they can earn God's favor by keeping themselves clean and uncontaminated from the sinners around them. Sinners like the Gentiles and the Samaritans. And so when a Jew would go to the marketplace and purchase something that had been touched or potentially touched by a Gentile or a Samaritan, they would bring home their purchase and give it a bath. Now, when preachers read things like this, they, they come up with really weird questions like, can you imagine a Jewish family purchasing a kitten for their children and bringing it home and trying to give it a bath? That was supposed to be funny, all right? I don't But some of you may be thinking, Pastor Ken, we're not here to be comical. We're here because we have a question. Didn't God give cleansing ritual laws in the Old Testament about this ceremonial hand washing? And the answer is yes, that God did give laws in the Old Testament about ceremonial hand washing. But those laws were few and they were easy to follow, and those laws were given only to a specific group of Jews. They were only given to the priests. The priests. 
They were the ones who were required to wash their hands before offering sacrifices. That's why God put a lavatory in the tabernacle near the entrance to the holy place where the sacrifices would be offered. But there was no law whatsoever requiring ordinary, everyday Jews to go through a ritual cleansing before dinner or to give their cups or plates or dining couches a bath. But over time, the Jewish religious leaders began adding their own traditions into God's law. And eventually, their traditions weren't simply placed alongside of God's law. Their traditions actually superseded God's law and became the law. Listen carefully, please. Every time we add to the word of God, we inevitably subtract from it. That's the issue Jesus addresses in verses 6 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. When we add to God's commands and treat them as if they were God's commands, bad stuff happens. And it all begins with first going through the motions of worship in verses 6 and 7. And so Jesus quotes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And he says to these Pharisees, you may think you're worshiping God through your traditions by keeping your own rules. But listen, it's just lip service. Your heart isn't in it. Your worship is empty because you are raising your tradition to the status of God's word. You say God said when God really didn't say. And when you do that, You usurp God's authority, and you can't worship a God you've just dethroned in your own heart. Please listen carefully. Rule-making religion always emphasizes external behavior while ignoring the heart. And that's a problem because let me ask, what does God want from us? He wants our heart. You know why? It isn't that what we do out here isn't important. It's that the heart is the root of everything we do out here. The heart is the root of all our attitudes and affections and actions. It's the steering wheel of our life. It's the control module. And so whatever rules our heart rules us. Whatever owns our heart owns us. And so if God doesn't have our heart, God doesn't have us. And that's why we have those shocking words back in Isaiah chapter 1 where God comes to his people and says this, I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your sacrifices. It's all an abomination to me. Stop bringing your lambs. I don't need them. And because you're just going through the motions... I don't want them. I hate your going through the motions kind of worship because you're doing what you're doing just to keep me off your back. 
just to appease me. It isn't from your heart. So stop faking it. And God says that because our heart is a worship center. We're always worshiping. We don't just worship on Sunday. We worship our way through every moment of every day. And so the question is, at street level, in the flow of everyday life, what really rules my heart? What am I after? What do I crave? Because when God is on the periphery, he isn't at the center. I am. And when that's true, then secondly, in verses 8 and 9, we will replace God's commands with our personal application of those commands. You see, the Pharisees are taking God's hand-washing command further than he ever intended. They are applying it in ways that God never sanctioned. And when they do that, look in your Bibles. Look at what happens in verses 8 and 9. What happens in verse 8 is they abandon, the Pharisees abandon God's law. And then in verse 9, they reject God's law. And it's all because, now get this, it's all because they elevate their application of God's command to the very same level of God's command. So let me ask, what might this look like for us? Well, think about it like this. Okay, we're God's people. We want to be godly. We want to be holy because God straight up says, be holy because I am holy. First Peter chapter 1 verse 15. And so we build fences in our lives and in our churches to keep us from wandering away from God's commands. Let me give you some examples. Now, some of these examples are probably going to hit a bit close to home. But hopefully we can be honest and gracious about these things. For example, one of the big commands is Ephesians 5 verse 18. Where God says, don't be drunk with wine. Okay, that's a good command. Can we agree? Can we agree as a church that that's a good command? Don't be drunk with wine. It's, it's a command that's there to protect us because drunkenness is dangerous and so I might say, I might take that command and say, I don't ever want to be tempted to get drunk. And so I'm not going to eat at restaurants that serve alcohol. By the way, that's all fine and good. I can build that fence for myself to protect me from drunkenness. But what if my kids want to know why they can never experience those melt-in-your-mouth breadsticks at Olive Garden. You say, why do you always talk about food on Sunday mornings? <laughs> and the problem becomes, when I would respond to their question, why can't we go to Olive Garden by saying something like this? Well, well God says don't get drunk with wine. And so God prohibits us from going to places like Olive Garden because they serve wine. And there it is. You see what I've just done? I've replaced God's command with my own personal application of that command. 
And I treat then my application like it's the Bible, like it's God's rule. Please listen, I don't have the right to speak for God because I am not God. I can build that fence of not eating at restaurants that serve alcohol, but I don't have the right to impose my application upon God's word or to hold others to my application. It's like the issue of what we wear when we come to church. Now, when we come to a worship service like this, the Bible calls us to dress in a way that doesn't attract attention to ourselves or distract us from the worship of Jesus. We dress for God's glory. And so modesty is God's rule. Be modest. Dress modestly. He makes that clear in many places, specifically in the New Testament and also specifically in 1 Corinthians. Now... Maybe the way that you personally apply that rule of modesty is by wearing a suit and tie. And that's a completely appropriate application. But it isn't God's law. Jesus did not wear a suit and tie. And neither did his disciples. By the way, while we're talking about dress, we can become or we can hold to our own tradition on the flip side of that. To where we say, you know, I'm not going to be traditionalistic. And so I am not going to wear a suit and a tie. I'm going to wear blue jeans and my Johnny Cash t-shirt. And then I'm going to look at those in our church family who do wear a suit and tie, and I'm going to say to them, listen, quit dressing like a Pharisee. And you know what you've just done? You've become the new traditionalist. You see, it's a completely appropriate application to wear a suit and tie to God's law of being modest. But that isn't God's law. And so neither group here can look down on the other group who apply God's command of modesty differently than they. Okay, one more while I'm offending everybody in the room. Let's talk about the biggie, parenting and schooling. Maybe the way that you've applied God's commands in Deuteronomy 6 and Ephesians 6 to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, maybe the way you've applied that is by homeschooling. Or maybe you send them right here to the Christian school in our facility uh, that's, that's um, a ministry of our own church, Schaumburg Christian School. So I had to get that little promo in, okay? Um, You want to ensure, you either homeschool, you Christian school, you want to ensure that your children are educated from a Christian worldview. That's your application of God's command to train up your children for the glory of God. That's your application, but it isn't God's command. And so you can't condemn your fellow Christians who are fulfilling their parenting responsibilities while sending their children to a public school. Listen, that's the mindset at play right here that Jesus is warning against. 
That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're elevating the application, their application of God's law to the same status as God's law. So it becomes God's law. And when we do that, then thirdly, we will make void the word of God in verses 10 through 13. I want you again to notice the downward spiral here. When we make the Christian life all about our traditions and our rules and we impose them upon what God has said in his word, notice what happens. We don't just leave the commandment of God in verse 8 or reject the commandment of God in verse 9. We eventually make void the word of God in verse 13. And Jesus gives the Pharisees an illustration of how they're doing just that. And by the way, I want you to take notice here that Jesus uses one of the Ten Commandments as an illustration. So don't walk out this morning, please. This is where I want to be clear. Don't walk out this morning and say, Jesus is anti-rules. Jesus is anti-commandments. Jesus is anti-law. Listen, Jesus did not come to do away with the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the only hope we have of eternal salvation is that he did fulfill the law on our behalf. And so Jesus is not anti-law here. The illustration he uses is from God's law. And he says to the Pharisees, let me talk to you about the fifth commandment. And every child in this room should know the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment, children, is what? Let's try it one more time. The fifth commandment, and I'm looking at my own daughters, all right? So the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. I really hope now that our daughters are listening. And we would think that the Pharisees would be big on the fifth commandment because it's one of the ten biggies. But they had actually created their own loophole when it came to honoring their aging parents. You see, God's law instructed children to meet their parents' financial needs in their old age. That's one of the reasons we had five children. Um, Our our, um, chances of being cared for in our old age are better with five children than they were with four, or three, or two. Um... The Pharisees knew what God's law had commanded, but they invented a way to circumvent and to evade that commandment. It was a tradition called Corban. And when you pronounce Corban over your possessions, over your bank accounts, over your own retirement accounts, it means, it means that you're reserving everything you own to be donated after your death to the temple. And so you were given an exemption from supporting your parents with your possessions because you were giving it all to God. It was reserved. Not for your parents for the temple. Here's the kicker. Corbin was always a deferred gift. It was only a pledge. It was actually never given into, uh, to the temple until after someone's death. So you got to pronounce Corbin over everything you own instead of using that to support your parents in their old age. And, and you, it, it all stayed yours until you died. 
It was just a made-up way to evade God's command, to make void the word of God, all in the name of tradition. And Jesus says here, that's what happens when we begin messing with the Bible and putting words in God's mouth. Over time, we hand down our traditions to the next generation and make void the word of God. Now, I want to share my heart with you here because this text is first and foremost a warning to me as a pastor. I have no right to tamper with God's word when I preach and teach it to you. I have no right to pass off my thoughts or my views or my words as though they were God's when I'm speaking his word to you. I must always then be careful to define this is what Ken says and this is what God says. And that's not just a pastoral responsibility, that's also a parental responsibility. See, I've been a parent now for 25 years. Over 10 of those years, I've been uh, firsthand involved in youth ministry. I have enough miles behind me to have seen parents add their own rules to what God has said and then tell their children that their rules are what God said. I always want to be careful here when I talk about parenting. There are no perfect parents. And it's only by the grace of God that any of our children turn out for the glory of God. But let's be upfront, let's be honest. If I say to my daughters that God says they can't wear pants or jeans or shorts, if I say to my children, God says don't go to movies, if I say to them, God says don't dance, you say, Pastor Ken, you're just digging the hole deeper. Hold on. Those may be perfectly good parental and personal applications to God's commands. As a parent, God grants you and God grants me the authority to make the rules in our own homes. But God does not give you or me the authority to put words in his mouth. I know, I know you want to guard the hearts of your kids. I I know you want to protect them from things that can harm them. I know you want them to grow up to love and follow Jesus. But when you say God says, and they get old enough to read for themselves what God does say, and they discover that God doesn't say what you said he said, they won't just lose confidence in your word. They'll lose confidence in his And that's a big deal because our children's big problem isn't an external thing that our rules and our laws and our traditions can fix. Our children's problem is an internal thing that only Jesus can fix. That's why it isn't really about unclean hands. It's about unclean hearts. And if we don't get that, then fourthly this morning, we will miss the heart of the matter that Jesus uncovers in verses 14 through 23 of Mark chapter 7. 
Now, for the sake of time this morning, I'm just going to summarize these verses. I encourage you, you're intelligent people. You can work through this text, this part of the text, on your own, at home. But the big point here is that Jesus is driving home the point he's been making by diagnosing humankind's real problem. It isn't defilement from the outside. It isn't uncleanness from the outside. It's not about what we eat. It isn't what goes into the body that defiles us. It's what comes out of the heart. Because everything you do is rooted in who you are. Your big problem is you. And that's why Jesus came to do for you what traditions and laws could never do. Jesus came to save you from you, to rescue me from me, to deliver us from us. Because every sin lives in my heart before it's ever committed with my hands. Even murder, Jesus says. Before I pull the trigger and take a life, it's a murderous heart that causes me to hate someone who is made in the image of God. It's an immoral, lustful heart that craves sexual immorality more than the glory of Jesus. And so I'm going to look at porn or I'm going to commit adultery. When I help myself to the five-finger discount and shoplift a pair of Bose earbuds, it's really because my covetous heart is not satisfied in God and His grace and all that He's provided for me. When I slander the boss because I didn't get the promotion, the venom I spew from my lips is being drawn from the well of my heart. That's where uncleanness resides. And down deep inside, we all get that. We all know that our external acts of sin are evidence of a much deeper problem We're broken and defiled on the inside. And so no law or command, nothing we do or don't do can fix our own heart. Only Jesus can. And so here are two action steps that we can take with us this morning from this text. The first is this. Find your righteousness always and only in Jesus. He's our only hope. He is the only antidote for a defiled, unclean, sinful heart. It isn't about us renovating the outside with our rules and our laws and our traditions. It's about Jesus transforming us on the inside. He must give me a new heart, a new control module with new affections for God and His righteousness. And how does that happen? Well, look up at the screen. It's 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, those are two huge words. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That means new through and through, all the way down to the heart. The old has passed away. The new has come. So how do we get to be in Christ? What is this group that, of people that are in Christ? Well, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, just a few verses later, that for our sake, the Father made the Son, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. The perfect, righteous, holy one was treated as though he had committed our sins. 
as though he were unclean, as though he were defiled. And why does he die on the cross as though he were a sinner, having committed every one of my sins, so that in him, there it is again, in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, something huge happens at the moment we trust in Jesus. At that moment, God the Father credits us with the righteous life of Jesus that he lived on our behalf because Jesus took our sin upon himself on the cross as though he himself had committed every one of those sins. It's what theologians call the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin and we get credited with his righteousness. Is that true for you? Have you been given a new heart? Are you in Christ? The Bible says in Acts 16 verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Would you come? Would you receive that new heart all by grace, by what Jesus has done? And the Father applying that grace to you, giving you that new heart. And when you trust in Jesus alone and his righteousness, when he alone is your hope, and then you will be freed to do number two, take the second action step this morning, and that is to genuinely love your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Even those who apply God's commands practically in real life differently than you. You can love them. You can sit alongside of them and worship with them. You see, don't misunderstand this morning. Jesus is not calling us to be soft on sin. He's calling us to be the unpharisee, to be big on grace like he is, to remember that I'm just as broken as everybody else and that no amount of rulemaking or law-keeping is capable of fixing me. And so then the more I grow in grace, the more I'll realize how deeply I need the righteousness of Jesus to live that righteous and holy life. So Bethel, let's not be sin sniffers or fault finders or pharisaical tattlers. Let's be grace givers like Jesus. Because God owns our hearts and not just our hands. Let's echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 verse 9 that we would be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Let's not miss what the Pharisees missed. God wants our hearts. And the way he wins our hearts and keeps our hearts is through the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So let's be all about Jesus and his righteousness. Because as 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10 says, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Amen. Father, may you take your word and drive it home deeply, firmly, and we thank you that you always do that graciously. Lord, this is a hard text because the natural tendency within all of us 
is to play the Pharisee. So defeat that in our hearts, in our lives. Help us to see grace, to grab hold of grace, and to understand that righteous, holy living that you call us to is motivated and driven by the grace we've been granted in Jesus. So can I ask you, friend, this morning, have you, have you grabbed hold of the grace of Jesus? Are you a Christian? Are you saved? Are you in Christ? Has the righteousness of Jesus been credited to your eternal account because you've believed on the one who bore your sins and took your place on the cross? Would you believe right now on the Lord Jesus Christ and would you be saved? And he will give you a new heart, a new life, a new destiny. If you'll but repent and embrace Jesus by faith right now. Christian, is it really all about Jesus? Does God really have our hearts? Or is our focus on the external? Have we elevated our personal views, our fences that we build to protect our holiness and our righteousness? Have we elevated those things to the level of God's word? And do we genuinely love one another who may differ from us on the applications of these things? May God remind us afresh this morning that it's always and only by the righteousness of Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen.